You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. There's a new podcast out from the Libertarian Christian Institute called Reformed Libertarians with hosts Carrie Baldwin and Greg Baus. And they join me today to explain what a Reformed Libertarian is. Is it different than a Protestant, an Evangelical? Who knows? So we'll talk about that. They'll define that. And then we get into a discussion about Christian nationalism. How can Reformed Libertarianism be a good alternative to Christian nationalism? We'll discuss that right after these words here on The Chris Spangle Show. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We run on the value for value model here on the Chris Spangle Show and the We Are Libertarians podcast network. That means, do you get value out of the show? Do you learn something that helps you sound smarter when talking with your friends? Do you feel a little bit more connected to the world and inspired to do something a little bit differently? Well, then please give some value back. And the best way that you can do that is through our Patreon. You can go to supportcss.com or patreon.com slash libertarians, and you can join our Patreon. Not only do you support the program and the entire We Are Libertarians podcast network by helping pay all of the bills, you're also going to get ad-free shows. You're going to get early releases, sometimes months in advance in terms of episodes that haven't been released in the public feed yet. You'll also be able to get the full archives, the full RSS feed of all the past episodes and there's even a tier that you can come on the show or you can have your name mentioned every episode like i am about to do right now thank you so much to our 100 a month members especially vincent peichel matthew durbin jason doolittle christy avery and our good friend reinhold thank you so much for supporting us and we appreciate everybody that considers making a contribution today carrie and gregory thank you so much for being my guests here on the show today Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. We're really happy to talk to you and your audience. Now, Gary, I followed your work for a long time. I enjoy your podcast. I'm a new fan of the Reformed Libertarian podcast. Well, let's start with your backgrounds. Gary, give us a background on both your faith and how you got into libertarianism. I'm, I always presume everybody that wants to come on the show is a libertarian. Some people are like, no, I'm a classical liberal. <laughs> I am a libertarian. Uh, yeah, I guess some history on myself. I was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, raised in the LCMS Lutheran Church, that's Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, and spent some years in a non-denominational church, eventually found myself reforming thanks to R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries. And so I managed to find an Orthodox Presbyterian church here locally. And there was some unfortunate fallout from that. And so I am now a resident Calvinist at, at our local LCMS church. Once again, it's my parents' church. So that's the rough overview of my history as a Christian. Uh, as far as being libertarian, I basically became a libertarian in 2008 with the presidential election and, and Ron Paul maintained my minarchist standing for way longer than six months. I eventually became a libertarian anarchist in 2016. It had a lot to do with the explanation that we now offer on reformed libertarians regarding Romans 13 and that sort of thing. That was really what, between that and the concept of polycentric law, those two things really pushed me over into being a libertarian anarchist. So that's a rough overview of my history. Yeah, and you write at MereLiberty.com and you host the Dare to Think podcast. When did you start podcasting and what do you do over at Mere Liberty? Mere Liberty is about challenging and rethinking paradigms in politics, religion, and culture. I don't write necessarily on libertarian philosophy specifically, but what I write about is coming from a philosophically libertarian, theologically reformed perspective. And I started the podcast, Dare to Think, back in, gosh, must have been 2017. 
with some episodes on abortion, I was challenging both sides of that debate, but particularly the pro-life side for ignoring the economics that that surround the issue. I felt Austrian economic theory really lent itself to answering some questions about how we should deal with the issue. And so at any rate, after a number of episodes on that, I was invited by Gene Epstein at the Soho Forum to go debate Walter Block on the topic of a libertarian theory of abortion. And I took the pro-life perspective, but I like to say that it's not your standard pro-life response to abortion. I, like I said, I challenge really both sides of that debate, but I've received a lot of positive feedback from those of us who are in the gray middle, I like to call it, they're the ones that recognize that there's a complicated, a complexity to the issue. And so whether you lean pro-choice or lean pro-life, if you're in that gray area, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on my view. That's what that's about. Yeah. And we'll dive into that in a little bit because I'm interested to hear more about that. I definitely feel that way. (laughs) I'm pro-life, but my wife is starting an Embrace Grace group at our church because of the feeling of that complexity of like, it isn't Mm -hmm. just this simple. But Gregory, tell us your story. How did you, you know, come to know Christ? Were you like my wife who, you know, just never had an issue or me where at 18, I I was like, you know what? I think I'm a Christian (laughs) after being an atheist. (laughs) I did grow up in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and have known and loved the Lord for as long as I can remember. In high school, as my mind was maturing, my understanding of the faith, of course, became more in-depth, and I really embraced what you might call reformed theology we've already referred to it but people might be unfamiliar with that yeah if you could if we could just pause in your story and i think is reformed does that mean protestant does that mean evangelical are these different things what the heck if it's a reformed person what is a reformed christian why are you putting labels on it in our first episode of the reformed libertarians podcast we do try to give a brief summary to orient people to what it is that we're referring to In the 1500s, this is the early 1500s, the first half, the Protestant Reformation officially begins. There's Martin Luther in Germany, Earl Rich Zwingli (laughs) in Switzerland, and those... I didn't know a Reformation started over eating hot dogs, but (laughs) that was a revelation (laughs) to me. It did, in fact. Yes, the affair of the sausages. People can look that up. There's a Wikipedia entry. It's an interesting story. So everybody knows about, not everybody, but you know what I'm saying. The story of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg is more well known. The situation, the protest over Lent in Switzerland is not as well known, but a good story. And in any case, so as the Protestant Reformation begins, there, by the 1550s, maybe a little bit earlier, actually, you end up having the consolidation of those churches that are really embracing the theology articulated by Luther and his followers, and then those other ones that take more of a generic title of reformed, but sometimes nicknamed Calvinist after John Calvin. So that's really reformed theology. You can say reformational theology sort of embraces both, but in any case, it had representatives not only in Germany, but of course in Great Britain and Elsewhere in continental Europe, including Eastern Europe, France, and so on. Although in some places it doesn't thrive as because of political oppression as much as Lutheranism does in Germany, for example. Yeah, Carrie, Reformed versus just plain old Protestant. If I go to Omega Church, am I part of the Reformed? 
Do I have to be Presbyterian or Lutheran? Help us out a little more. Oh my gosh, it's funny because the Lutherans don't like being referred to as Protestants. <laughs> of course. No, some, some don't. I can't imagine all of them. You find all the nitpicking to be annoying. Oh, like I know. I've been reformed. I, the worst mistake. You, t- you two are the only two that I know that will get this. I, after 15 years of being in libertarian Facebook groups, joined reformed Facebook groups, and I was like, they're worse. How can they be worse? <laughs> We do have a reformed libertarianism okay. and a reformed anarchism Facebook groups. Oh, they, just double yes. down. People are welcome the, to join the, if they subscribe. The reformed anarchism group, by the way, Gregory and I moderate, and it's not it, it's not off the rails like yeah. some of the other groups. <laughs> right? I don't know how many times I've been kicked out of reformed pub. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So at any rate, reform covers mostly Presbyterian church polity. Uh, if you've heard of of the Presbyterian Church, although there's a split in the Presbyterian Church between liberal and conservative. So like the PCUSA, for example, is liberal, uh, OPC, PCA, those are more conservative. There are doctrinal, nuanced doctrinal distinctions between Lutherans and the Reformed. So the Lutherans hold to the Augsburg Confession, the Reformed hold to any one of a number of other confessions, Westminster, three forms of unity, and I'm forgetting the other one, Gregory, what's the... Second Helvetic. Thank you, Second Helvetic. So at any rate, and there is a strain of Reformed Baptists who basically have, their confession is very similar to the Westminster, although they don't practice pedo-baptism. And is that the only difference? I'm sure there's probably a couple of other differences. uh... Typically, congregational polity in their churches, right. how the churches are arranged and yeah. associate together. There also seems to be, in terms of how worship plays out, a, a big difference. Because I went from Mount Pleasant, which was a mega church, evangelical, non denominational. I grew up in the Methodist church. Now I go to a PCA church downtown, which is very much modeled on Tim Keller's Redeemer Church. And I love it, but it, it is much more. I say this with love, egg, egg heady. Like <laughs> people in the reformed movement seem to be much more interested in philosophy, in all kinds of different levels of apologetics and types of apologetics, theologies, much more than like the mega church that I went to, where it was more about the show and get in a small group. And it was much more around the individual and trying to feed the individual what they want, where the PCA church, I'm not going to say all PCA churches are the same. I get the feeling I go to the liberal end of the <laughs> of the spectrum there. But it is much more engaged in doctrinal arguments, theolo- theological arguments, communal living, helping the local community. It plays out in such a different way because it's not as focused on feeding kind of the self-help individual autonomous message of the baby boomer generation. Let me say this, American evangelicalism is known for abandoning doctrine, which is the eggheady stuff that that you're referring to. And when you abandon that, this is something that that Billy Graham did. He abandoned, he told people to abandon doctrine. All you needed was Jesus. And when you do that, what do you replace that with? There has to be some sort of substance that you replace that with. And so evangelicalism replaced doctrine with some pretty self-centered, I would say, false doctrine. Some of it is completely contradictory to what orthodox doctrine is. And so that creates a lot of problems. And actually, I think the evangelical deconstruction movement is evidence of the failure of abandoning doctrine. So those of us who are confessional, and that might be, like I said, holding to Westminster or Augsburg or Three Forms or Second Helvetic, those of us who are eggheady about it, we see the importance of doctrine and you cannot abandon it. There's a reason why it's there. And when you've experienced, and I did experience several years in a non-denominational church, when you've experienced a deprivation of good doctrine. When you find it again, it's finding water in the desert. (laughs) 
You might drown yourself on it. I want to echo that. I was thinking last night, I was like, this has been the most, and it's not just the church, it's just that swimming in the Reformed stream has caused me to think harder about a lot of different things. It's more challenging intellectually, which is one reason that I like it. But if if you're not familiar with confessional, that basically means that you're tying yourself to a standard from one of these confessions that were written by groups in the past, these different standards, we won't go all the way into it. You can look up some of the ones that they're talking about. But do you find that I have always found that people who stick close to the non-aggression principle as libertarians have weathered the nationalist change in the libertarian movement a lot better than people who might have gone, yeah, let's get a little wishy-washy with some of these atomistic principles and Let's play with other ideologies and read some Curtis Yarvin. Is that part of the attraction here? Is that why you think that there needs to be a reformed libertarian podcast as opposed to another Christian libertarian podcast? This starts to get further into the deep end, and we'll try to make it as explicable, as understandable, in common terms as possible. But where there are there is a maybe a general approach to libertarianism from a Christian perspective or a Christian perspective on libertarianism generally, the distinctives of the Reformed faith, both more particular Reformed theology as well as a Reformed theology, Reformed philosophy, just can tr- have so many beneficial insights to contribute to our perspective of libertarianism. So our interest is in promoting those insights because we think they are so beneficial to holding to a libertarian perspective, especially if you are a Christian to, we just think these are truths that outside of this view just aren't well known and not easily discovered. What would be a that. couple examples? Let me touch on real briefly what might be a more now basic... when when a Presbyterian says, "Let me touch on something real briefly." You all need to grab <laughs> water or a coke or something. <laughs> I got three points. Here we go. <laughs> the more basic Christian perspective on libertarianism, as I've heard it from other Christian libertarians, is that. The sixth and eight commandments, commandments, as some Protestants reckon them, that is, do not murder, do not steal, is a touch point, right? So the right to life and property there in those commandments, uh, affirming self-ownership and property rights, which is a basic principle, I think, of what libertarianism is. So that's one, the, those two commandments. Christians tend to view libertarianism in terms of those ethical points. The sixth and eighth commandments, do not murder, do not steal. The next would be Jesus's own uh, moral imperative to treat others as you would be treated, the do unto others statement. And this is basically non-aggressionist. It's non-retaliation. And Christians have seen that as a way of Christ's own teaching that reaffirms, that supports, and is compatible with the libertarian political view. And third, a reading of the Bible that recognizes how in the history of redemption, Scripture portrays centralized power in a consistently negative light from Lamech, one of the descendants of Cain, as a kind of tyrant, to Nimrod, the Hamite in Genesis 10 after the flood, to warnings about the Israelite monarchy in 1 Samuel 8, to a negative portrayal of the Egyptian, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Persian empires, up to Revelation 13. And the portrayal of states, such as the Roman Empire, as the beast, violently opposed to Christ's kingdom. 
So those three things, the commandments, Christ's own moral teaching, and this understanding of biblical history and how it portrays governmental power tend to be the general perspective from which Christians can see libertarianism as compatible with their faith. Now, in addition to that, I'll say, because we embrace those things as well, there are several points that both, I think, Reformed theology and a Reformational or Neo-Calvinist philosophy have to contribute to an understanding, a, a particular Christian understanding, and we would say a Reformed understanding of libertarianism. The first one being that there is no such thing as a genuinely secular or non-religious basis upon which you would hold libertarianism. Now, this might seem a little complicated, but I'll try to explain it in basic terms that whatever political theory you have, and in fact, whatever theory of any kind, and what distinguishes theory from non-theory is not, is, this is not uh, theory as opposed to practice, right? Or contemplation and reflection versus other kinds of action. Yeah, meaning it's a structured thought process. It's a structured set of ideas as opposed to just doing just, is that what you mean by theory versus practice versus just ethereal daydreaming? Yeah, we don't mean, but what I mean to say is we don't mean when we speak of something theoretical, we don't mean as opposed to practice because theory is a kind of action, right. it's a kind of practice. And there's two elements to the theory. Basically, there's an explanatory hypothesis involved that is an educated guess, right? You're trying to explain something and you do it in terms of abstraction, right? So the abstractive nature of thought with this explanatory hypothesis bit, that that's what we're referring to as theories. And political theory is a variety of that. Now, anytime you're engaged in that kind of thinking, there is a more general view of reality that informs some particular field of theory. And behind that more general view of reality is what I'm calling the religious basis. That's inescapable. So even for people who reject traditional religions, their basis that influences their view of reality that then in turn influences whatever sort of theorizing they're doing is essentially a religious commitment. And that means the what we're calling the religious commitment that's inevitable that everyone engages in when they're doing theory is a view, even if it's unconscious, that is not explicit in their own thinking, is taking something as what is self-existent, that is non-dependent, upon which everything else in reality depends. Now, articulating that might be a little too involved for this podcast, but... We have a very smart audience. What are you saying, Gregory? <laughs> it may <laughs> but, take too much time away it from... just in, for the dummies in the audience, just in case. <laughs> yeah, but what... For example, the Pythagoreans, to go back to ancient Grecian society, thought that everything was number. And that influenced not just their view of mathematics, but their view of what everything was. And they took number itself to be ultimate, that is, self-existent, upon which everything else that exists depends for its reality. Someone who is a materialist or naturalist or physicalist, however you want to describe that view, who thinks that matter, energy, time is all there is, that exists for them as the equivalent to what Christians affirm in believing in the reality of God as the creator. It is that which is self-existent, non-dependent, upon which everything else in reality depends for its exist existence. That's the religious commitment. 
that influences your view of reality that then is the basis upon which you would theorize about anything in particular. So everybody's building a reality. Everybody's operating from a theory of reality. And that's right. It, and that's influenced by religious commitment, right. which is a view of what is ultimate reality. Is that, so, uh, look, Carrie, let me, before I keep going, Carrie, a- add what you'd like to add to that. Oh, I guess I, I don't have much to add except to say that it doesn't matter whether you're a theist or an atheist or agnostic, you could be like Carl Sagan, right? And believe that everything in the cosmos came from a big bang or whatever. And that's still, it's still theorizing about what this universe, this cosmos depends on. The point of this, I would say, is that whatever our beliefs are about reality, they are going to influence and inform what we believe is true about the reality of civil governance. And that's how we start to formulate these ideas about what the proper role of civil governance is supposed to be. And so when we understand the relationship there, we can understand some of what our presuppositions are, what our priors are, and a a, an atheist libertarian and a Christian libertarian may be able to agree on certain points of libertarian political philosophy, but they both have different reasons for holding to it. And I would say this is helpful for Christians in particular, because just in, in recent years, I've noticed this, this push or this resistance among some prior libertarians, even prior reformed libertarians towards so-called post-libertarianism or paleo-conservative, they're reverting back to an authoritarian mindset. And it's because they never got questions, certain questions answered about how to deal with particular things, say in the culture, right? How do you deal with the transgender stuff? How do you deal with feminism? How do you deal with these things that are outside the purview of libertarian civil governance. If you don't understand what the priors are, you know, where you're coming from in building that political philosophy to begin with, then you either end up with the answer that we offer, which some of those things are solved outside of civil governance, or you end up where these post-libertarians have ended up, which is reverting back to authoritarianism. So in other words, you're offering a framework, Gregory, where, look, there's legitimacy in all of these different views that people tend to look at like a Christian libertarian view and go, this isn't legitimate because you're operating from a place where you're all basing it on God and God's not real. And so let's just toss out those presuppositions. You're saying, look, everybody comes to it with these priors, with that relationship let's argue on an even playing field. Is that a correct restating? That's largely correct. However you might define libertarianism, and we define it as affirmation of self-ownership and property rights and the corresponding obligation to those things is what we would say is the non-aggression principle so you can't initiate coercion against someone else's person because they're self-owners or property because property rights are real. Then the So that might be, as some say, a thin definition of libertarianism. And we agree with that with other people. Plenty of other people who are not Reformed, who are not Christians, embrace that understanding. But no one embraces it thinly. So... The point is that that's a thin definition that might make you a libertarian. That might be the definition of libertarianism. You hold it for some reason. You could just ask the question, why would people own themselves or why would you think that? Or what's the basis for self-ownership or property rights? Or why shouldn't I then initiate coercion? against others and their property. Yeah, it's a huge reason I'm a libertarian is the Imago Dei, that every human being is created in the image of God. So therefore, what are the implications of that? That means that you can't 
steal from someone. You can't lie to them. You can't defraud them. You can't murder them. You can't have yeah. an abortion. You can't have... There's and, all of these different things flow from that piece that make me libertarian because that is a central principle to what I believe, to my faith, to what Jesus believes. And even if someone says. doesn't have that self-conscious basis for their libertarian views, there's some implied basis for their views. If it's not that, there's something, even if they're not aware of what it is. There's some basis upon which they hold that to be the, tr the case. And so that's what we're talking about in terms of a, a Christian libertarian perspective and a specifically reformed libertarian perspective is no different than other anyone how anyone else holds to libertarianism. They all have grounds for their acceptance of libertarianism, and those are ultimately religious grounds. So I want to go back to the post-libertarian folks, Kerry, because you're really hitting on something that I've wondered a lot about, and I'd love to hear you tease that out a little more. The pipeline of Republican to Ron Paul fan to Libertarian Party to anarcho-capitalist to Ahapa sounds interesting to Curtis Yarvin really has a lot of good points to, you know what, we really do need an Orban-style government is a very real thing. I've seen it in several of my friends, lots of online Libertarian friends over the last, I've been a Libertarian since 07 and deeply embedded into the movement. And so I've just seen a lot of these people flow that way. And social issues seem to be at the core of it. Now, I have gone the other way. I look at it and where I'm at is that libertarian is an expression of God's goodness. It's love in action. It's mercy in action. It's starting nonprofits. It's getting engaged in your community. It's building strong families. It is taking the fruits of the spirit and putting that into uh, civil society actions in order to build the world that you want, as opposed to just being anti-government and let's all be Ayn Rand and start some businesses and profit will solve everything, which I don't think that anymore either. But I've not, I, I don't really have an answer and haven't really thought out or understand why some people go the other way where they go, look, are they just so motivated by anti-LGBT sentiment, specifically T sentiment, that they're willing to... I don't know. You're the expert. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I've thought about this for a while. And I would say that ultimately it has to do with the fact that many libertarians, even libertarian anarchists, believed that libertarianism could be bought at the ballot box. And it hasn't been. And since it hasn't been, and on top of that, we're seeing a huge cultural fallout, which is not only from the LGBTQ ideology, but also from feminism, which ties into that, the impact on the family, on men, there's definitely a, a cultural crisis with men at the moment. Uh, and it's very easy to say things are falling apart, and I think they are. How does actual legitimate change occur? And I think for a lot of libertarians, they believed that we could achieve libertarian ends with authoritarian means vis-a-vis -vis voting. And they have since found that voting doesn't actually it isn't a place where we can achieve libertarianism. And actually, quite frankly, I think it makes a lot of sense because libertarianism believes in a concept of spontaneous order, that order arises or emerges from our voluntary interactions with each other. And so if we're going to achieve a libertarian society, it's from hearts and minds being changed. And of course, you, there's a lot of people who feel like ah, there's no time for that. I cannot tell you how many people I've run into who think there's not enough time to change hearts and minds. We have to do it by force in some way. Then this goes back to the, the original question. How do we make change? Is it through force? And the, the answer is, 
you can't make change through force, not lasting effective change towards freedom by any stretch of the imagination. So there's a little bit of impatience. There's a little bit of, I would say, despair concerning the culture and also somewhat of a despondency that the Ron Paul revolution didn't result in a Ron Paul type figure taking office and rolling, rolling back government peacefully. Gregory, sort of the same question, but slightly asked differently. Like, why is Doug Wilson's Christendom and Theonomy and the Theo Bros, like Joel Webb and on YouTube, why are they gaining traction? Why, is, when I was coming up and I was a new baby Christian, it was Chuck Swindoll and it was J Mac and it was friendly Christian talk radio, but it seems that new media has incentivized edge. Yeah, it is a response to the reflection on the state of the culture, right? So if people feel society is definitely going to hell in a handbasket now, (laughs) that provokes, provokes more of a response in terms of flailing about for solutions and the solution that we're going to have a godly society through the imposition of governmental power seems initially plausible and people rightly want a more godly society and think if Christianity and the Bible somehow underwrite the project of Christendom or Christian nationalism or something, then I guess I should go for that. If God is saying, imitate the national, imitate old covenant Israel and the Mosaic laws, gosh, if that's what God's word says, then they feel compelled to go along with it. And they're being sold this bundle of goods. Thank you for not cursing on this Christian podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah. Let me just tie a nice bow in this because Connecting it back to what we mentioned about our basis for holding to libertarian ideas being religious belief. If you look at the people who are now either clamoring for Christian nationalism or have reverted back to an authoritarianism, many of those people have a view of the gospel that is works-based, that you somehow have to be good enough. And I'm I want to draw this out as an example of why it's important for libertarians to understand why they hold to the ideas that they do, and that it is also a religious belief that is driving that. In the case of Christian nationalists or post-libertarians, it has to do what they believe about how change happens, what people should be acting like, that sort of thing. Okay, so how does Reformed libertarianism offer a better vision for people who may be buying into Christian nationalism, theonomy, or even liberalism. And by that, liberal Christianity, not uh, classical liberalism. Let me try to find a uh, segue into this. One of the emphases of reform thought, and I would say where a lot of these Christian nationalist types go horribly wrong, but one of the emphases is what's called covenant theology. And so it's recognizing this theme of covenants in scripture, how God relates to people through this arrangement, this mutual agreement or what have you known as a covenant and lays out how those are related. One of the ways in which theonomists or theocrats or Christian nationalists or Christendom, so on, goes wrong is by misunderstanding that relationship between the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant established by Christ. So Paul, of course, tries to elaborate on this, or I would say it does by the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans and in Galatians, and the author the epistle to the Hebrews does so as well. And one of the things he says is that the old covenant is now obsolete 
And so it's appreciating that fact and how that's the fact and what that means that uh, really supports a reformed libertarian perspective. Uh, basically, the old, so <laughs> the whole point of the misunderstanding the relationship is that these people are looking back to the old covenant, theocrats and so on, and saying, this is the model in the new covenant era for what sort of civil governance Christians should support. And that's dead wrong. Yeah, I was couldn't be wronger. I was listening (laughs) to a a debate. um, Premier is a podcast. I think it's unbelievable is the podcast where they have debates with a lot of people. And it was Andy Stanley versus the Apologia guy. I forget his name, but he's urban. It's like Josh something, Jeff, or start with a J. But Jeff, Jeff Durbin, yeah. It's yeah, Jeff Durbin. Jeff Durbin. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and Andy Stanley, basically, he, oh, we unhitched from the Old Testament is what he gets accused of. But what he was saying is, no, the thing that matters the most is the resurrection. And so in a culture that doesn't have time and doesn't have context, the thing that matters the most is the resurrection. Let's talk about the resurrection. And... Durbin was basically saying, well, no, the Bible is the thing that matters. We need to focus on the Bible, which there's echoes of that in what you're saying, where, like, how, how should we approach the culture? You know, you, you don't want to just throw the Old Testament out. It obviously is incredibly important. Part of the the entire plan of salvation basically comes from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. But there seems to be that disconnect where it's no we're only going to talk about happy jesus and we're no we're only going to talk about how you need to be more hardcore so carrie like where's that middle that your podcast is trying to get at i'm actually going to kick this back to gregory (laughs) mostly because he's much better at explaining it than i am but I, i will say the old testament is absolutely relevant Um, it is relevant to the New Testament. So we can't be like Andy Stanley and just throw it out because it's difficult or it has themes that are hard to understand in light of the situation that we're living in now. But that is all theological. And we would use the word eschatological, which has more to do with the the coming kingdom of God. And so not applicable (laughs) to kingdoms on earth, but I'm going to kick it over to Gregory so he can answer it more in depth. Touching on culture before the institution of the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant at Sinai, after the flood, God makes another covenant with Moses. He made the initial one to save him in the flood him and his family, but then there is what's called a common, sometimes called a common grace covenant. And this is God's promise not to destroy the world again before final judgment. That's, not the, to de- that's the real rainbow. Okay, go ahead. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. All of life again by flood. And along with that came uh, a passage in Genesis 9. You can read it there which has a legal import. Sometimes it's referred to as lex talionis. So this is the, this Latin for the law of retribution. And he's saying he is explicitly authorizing the use of proportional responsive coercion to aggression. And it's by the, by man, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That not only authorizes proportional responsive coercion, in other words, what we understand to be civil governance, the administration of civil justice, dealing with acts of aggression against person and property, but establishes a principle of proportionality that can be that that is properly understood in terms of the non-aggression principle. This making explicit God's ins- institution, the lex talionis, outside of the Mosaic covenant, is the principle 
that now governs civil governance in the new covenant outside the old covenant. This is the perspective that reformed covenant theology properly understood gives us. And so the old Mosaic covenant is a temporary suspension of the normal operations of common grace. So the people of Israel under God's authorization conquer the promised land and a special typological arrangement, political arrangement is in play during that time where non-aggressive immorality is civilly punished. But when that covenant has served its purpose, that is pointing to the end times, that's the eschatological, that's the word that Carrie was using, the end pointing to the end times reality of God's final judgment, that was its symbolic purpose. When that ar- when the point of that arrives in the person of Jesus Christ, accomplishing in history the redemption of God's people to bring final judgment at the end, the and establishing the new covenant, the old covenant goes away. And the arrangement by which politically or civilly non-aggressive immorality would be punished doesn't hold anymore. And we have the Lex Talionis basically affirming that principle of proportionality to be understood in terms of the non-aggression principle as the biblically authorized framework for civil governance outside of the old covenant. Now again, resumed during the new covenant era. This is the theological understanding of the reformed faith that is a sort of explicit recommendation of a libertarianism for Christians to embrace. That's one area. And let me just add, we see that as libertarians, we see this evidenced in reality. You can write a law that makes drug abuse illegal. This is a a non-aggressive, immoral thing to do. You can make a law about that, but it doesn't accomplish uh, its purpose of deterrence or anything like that because it's not it, it, it doesn't fall under the realm of civil governance, of God-ordained civil governance. We see it in Scripture. The old Mosaic covenant did not produce the godly society. <laughs> yeah, David, his best king, couldn't. Right. That's right. Yeah, didn't do well, it. Or even and- uh, David's son, Solomon, is pretty much, even though he's you know the picture of the best king, and things only get worse from there, mm-hmm. he exactly violates all the terms for kingship that God said, when you look for a king, he shouldn't right. be like this. Solomon himself, the best example was like that. And that, that like goes back to, be. yeah, that goes back to what we're saying. The purpose of the Mosaic covenant was, which was Gregory used that word typological. It's that's a theological word, which means to point to it's supposed to point to the coming judgment and the, the coming kingdom. It is not there. Like the whole point of the Mosaic covenant was to show Israel that they could not earn heaven on their own. That was the point. And Christ fulfilled that on Israel's behalf. That was the point of Christ coming and dying and being resurrected was that he fulfills the covenant. So this idea that, oh, we've got this so-called political philosophy in terms of the old Mosaic covenant written into scripture, that doesn't mean we use it. Because the purpose of it isn't the same as uh, as what the Christian nationalists and the theonomists are trying to repurpose it for. You said something that sparked something there for me. So it's you. You guys understand this stuff just on a level. I don't. I have understood everything you said. You've been very clear. I'm not being sarcastic. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna we're gonna give you the bibliography. No, but <laughs> yeah, I didn't know tipiolo- I didn't know tipiology. I I learned that one. But is theonomy or Christian nationalism almost a 
form or is it a form of idolatry where it's almost like Babel? Like we're trying to build our tower to heaven. We're trying to build a perfect political system here on earth. And that's not what God wants. It's that to me, I think instinctually is what turns me off is that we're never going to have a perfect political system. You're never going to achieve that in our lifetimes or in human history. Uh, but it's almost like a form of idolatry. It's a, a form of human action that is just perverted. Is that too I, harsh? I think there are some that are not in their mode of holding to and promoting <clears throat> that perspective are not utopian. And instead, they're a kind of it's raw political uh, power. They just want to dominate to make you holy. They have a view of the Holy Spirit's work wherein they believe God is going to create the new Soviet man. Yeah. It's called post-millennialism. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, we address that in episode 15. So if people are following what we're talking about and interested in more details we address some key points against theocracy or Christian nationalism. Long story short, they think that they can do things or trigger things here on earth that will speed up the coming of Jesus, AKA why we need to support Israel in all of it. Is that interpretation correct? It's more the dispensationalist view that would be supporting Israel, but the post-millennialist view thinks that what God is going to be doing throughout history is creating the golden age Mm. through making more people Christians. Yeah. And thus imposing a theocratic type of government. And we don't think that's the picture. Okay. I think in addition to that, you probably have a lot of people who simply are reminiscing about life in a Christian nation or a Christian culture. And even though, and I've, I've heard this from some of them saying, we just, we don't care if people are truly Christian or not. We just want the Christian culture back. We want people to understand that these are the the morals and the standards that we live by. And they are looking for an environment, a culture that is comfortable to them, where mm-hmm. they can comfortably live out their beliefs, where they don't have to, and even to be as generous as possible to be in a place where their kids aren't getting exposed to this, these drag queen story hours and the absolute perversion that, you know, that you see coming from the left, from the progressive left. And certainly I can understand that. What I tell these people, what I remind these people of is the fact that the culture wars were fought in the 1990s and the 2000s as well. And there's good reason to believe that even the 1950s, if you look at, there's a book by Nancy Piercy called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And she even points out the problem with the 1950s caricature as being a problem. And the reality is, is that if you don't like the culture now, you need to understand that we are living the consequences of so-called cultural Christianity. This idea that there's just this facade of people faking Christian morals and values and hiding their debauchery behind closed doors or or whatnot. So it doesn't... And I've always said that the... The politicians that pretended to be Christians and they, they helped destroy the evangelical church in a lot of ways. Yeah. The pursuit well, of political power in the 80s and 90s set the template for our generation where there was that backlash. So I, right. I agree. Yeah. Go. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and that creates a huge stumbling, stumbling block as far as the rest of the world, right? If they see the United States, which is so called Christian nation, making war on everybody else, what does that say about? the impression that we're giving of what Christianity is and what a Christian culture is. My caution to those people who just are rebuffing the culture that we're in and would prefer to go back to that comfortable, well, at least everybody's faking being Christian, (laughs) is we're living the consequences of it. And you can't just, you can't just rewind time and expect it to stay there. Uh, If you actually want a Christian nation 
then what we need to do is preach the gospel. And that means preaching the gospel to everyone, including Drag Queen Story Hour. That's a radical example, but that's the idea. And that's really what scripture called us to. Christ didn't promise that we would live in the lap of luxury as Christians. He promised them that it would be hard and we would suffer and we would be persecuted and we would be a minority in our faith. And, and we, don't think, we don't think that a free society which is what we support in terms of libertarianism is itself the preaching of the gospel. But we think those are the best, that's the best condition possible for the preaching of the gospel. It's not a th- having a theocratic government. Right. It, it's the most the prosperity. Condition. It's the most harmony. It's the most, it's the least suffering. It's the, when you have more prosperity you have more nonprofits, churches, civil society being built up, Right now, it's a struggle as civil society gets eroded by government action and per- fake compassion, basically. I-, I may be in the total minority, and I- I'm sure I am, but I tend to think that things are getting more conservative, and th- people are getting better at arguing their position in the Christian world, and a lot of that is due to the discomfort, to the fact that secularism has taken over, that we're now center left secular. What was it? Rebecca McLaughlin's book, the secular creed, where she talks about all these different elements that are the, the religion of the secular left. But I think that in the last 10 years has made so many people stronger and finding new ways and new avenues to talk to the culture, to talk to their friends. And that to me is a net positive as opposed to the 10 years previous where it was just lackadaisical. I don't know, the, the first 10 years of being a Christian, it was, every sermon was, oh, we're lukewarm and we're going to get spit out of the mouth. And I don't hear that sermon as much now, because the people who are in the game actually believe and love Jesus and want to actually uh, spread the gospel, as opposed to everybody who's just going because grandma told them to, and this is just part of what I do. And so, I, I think there's some optimistic points here. And I tend to view people who look at it like the sky is falling and everything is going to heck in a handbasket. I go, yeah, but that isn't all necessarily bad. I think there's some trimming of the fat here that that is good, even if it is harder because people don't have the same language. Like you, you can say typiology and I may not totally grasp it, right? But the basics of Christianity, who is Moses? What is there? Nobody's watching the Ten Commandments on Easter. They don't have that basic understanding of the Ten Commandments, even, right? Which does make it harder. But I think that just means there has to be an adjustment. And in that adjustment, that's going to make people better. It's just that there are a lot of people that don't want to adjust because their incomes are tied to it or that's where they're comfortable at. They might have to go talk to people that don't look like them. But I look at it and go, look, this is just a new opportunity. Am I hopelessly, wildly Pollyanna here? No, I don't think so. I think in God's providence, what he'll accomplish in history, he doesn't specifically promise in Scripture, right? So that's where we differ from the post-millennialists. We don't think God is saying he's necessarily promising to make culture more godly or a society, any given society, more godly necessarily. But that said, we think a free society is genuinely possible and we are principally obligated to support it and promote it also for the sake of the gospel. And we're cheerful warriors in that respect. We're not black-pilled. As far as confidence in man and confidence in the nature of human beings, those who embrace the Reformed faith, who are Calvinists, have as low a view of human beings as <laughs> is possible. Famously, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Famously. Yeah. And so it doesn't depend on that. It doesn't depend on human beings being some other kind of creature than they are. We still think a free society is possible. And 
the best achievable, the best realistic, the best practical way that totally depraved sinners can organize themselves is according to libertarianism. We think it's possible. In fact, we even have an episode where we talk about the relation of sin and libertarianism. We talk about an article that I wrote about that, essentially saying you never concentrate power in the hands of sinners. Our view is taking into account the fact that human beings are sinners. You are not going to get a utopia. A utopia is not the goal. And so we do tie, and I forget, Gregory maybe, but I forget which episode that is. It's one of our episodes where we five? talk about it. Might be five. We also have uh, a YouTube playlist that has four videos hmm. where we discuss articles that Carrie had written for the Libertarian Christian Institute that deal with, you might say, minarchist objections to a stateless society. And so that's that would be the, the one dealing with Sinful Human Nature is the second one. I, I, I wasn't totally convinced, but I liked it. <laughs> okay. Myself, I'm not an anarchist um, for precisely all the reasons that you talked about in the episode. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I'm not willing to give it that last little piece of this privatized, to the privatized courts, uh, but <laughs> everything else I'm on board with. It has been a pleasure. I would love to have Carrie or both of you back to talk about abortion. Just really have a party and talk about abortion. But <laughs> I would love to hear your perspective, but we've run out of time. I don't want to keep you much longer. You've been so generous with your time. It's been a great conversation. Tons of fun. This is the kind of conversation that I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time but have not yet had the courage. So thank you so much for reaching out. And thank you, especially to the Libertarian Christian Institute for setting this up, for publishing books. We had Art Cardin on recently. I know, Carrie, you helped write a book for LCI, did you not? Yes, Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And you can still find that on Amazon. Yeah, I just actually bought the digital copy today. So now I own it in three versions. So I hope you get revenue. (laughs) But can you briefly... Carrie, touch on the Libertarian Christian Institute, because it seems like there's been a shift in the last couple of years in activity. I've had Dr. Norman Horn on in the past to talk about it, and there was like a Facebook group and a podcast and a website where they published articles, but there seems to be new energy in it over the last, I don't know, couple of years where it seems to be, I used to keep a list at libertyexplained.com of all the libertarian organizations. And if you go back to that list that was compiled around 2013 and kept through 2017, and you go through all of those think tanks and organizations are now either dead links or Trumpy, right? Mm. So there's not many libertarian organizations that have done what LCI has done or AEIR, where they're like, you know what, we're going to push into this and give it new life. So what has happened at LCI that has brought this about where you're publishing books have a podcast network for Christian podcasts and the like. Yeah, you are right. There has been a change. And that change actually came along, really, a majority of the change came along with Freedom Fest last year. We made a decision to to launch the Christian for Liberties Network, which is a, a network of podcasts that are libertarian and Christian, but from various uh, perspectives. So you have ours, which is the Reformed Libertarians podcast. You have the Protestant Libertarian podcast uh, with Alex Bernardo, the Biblical Anarchy podcast with Jacob Winograd. We also have moved over Mike Meharry's Godarchy po- podcast to the LCI website. So we have his entire library, even though he's not publishing new episodes, we have all of that over there. The idea... With, and of course, there's still the uh, Libertarian, Libertarian Christian, Christian podcast, podcast, and, and they, they also launched a podcast, which is quite ex- exciting. Sorry. I messed something up. I was I thought one of you had sent a private chat. I'll edit this part out. You, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got Mike Meharry's library, even though he's not publishing. What, Gregory, were you going to say something? Were you the one that sent the chat? All right. Yeah, we've got probably like two more okay. minutes left. Okay. Yeah. So I'll make this quick. So in addition to all those podcasts, we also have uh, a new podcast that we just launched called Faith Ventures, where we talk to Christian entrepreneurs who are using their businesses in a way that is faithful to the gospel. 
And so that's an exciting new opportunity as well. So yeah, we've got lots of new content on there. We are also inviting people to become LCI insiders. You have an opportunity to get some background information that, oh, what's the word? I'm losing it. (laughs) You get an insider's perspective to all the things that we're doing for a monthly donation and that sort of thing. So lots of things happening over at LCI and new stuff on the horizon as well. All right. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. Check out the Reform Libertarians podcast, and I'll put all the links so you can uh, hit up all their websites, all the LCI stuff that we've got in there, and the books, and everything will be in the show notes. So in the sake of time, we're going to skip shameless self-promotion because we just did all that. But thank you both (laughs) so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having us. And thank you for joining us here on The Chris Spangle Show. We hope that you got something out of this. If you found it interesting, if you learned something, the best thing you can do is share with your friends. And please go to iTunes, rate and review us. That really helps, especially since all the Christian nationalists are going to be giving you one-star reviews for this episode. (laughs) The Mises guys have already knocked my numbers down, but I'd appreciate your reviews. So please head over there and do that. Thanks so much for joining me here on The Chris Spangle Show.